0: environmental,
1: conversations,
0: on creative arts, scholarship, and teaching. This this is is ECOCAST. Welcome to ECOCAST, the official podcast of the Association of the Study of Literature and Environment. I'm Lindsay Jolivet.
1: And I am Brandon Gollum.
0: Welcome everyone to our July episode.
1: Yeah. It's a it's a big one for us. This is mm-hmm. our our second birthday, so uh, we're excited to be joining you. And um, it's it's your first of, a kind of I guess official official one yes. as as solo co-host. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, so we're excited. We've got we've got some some treats in store. But uh, I think before we get started, we want to take an opportunity to mm-hmm. maybe just uh, speak about a couple of things. So
0: yes, before we get started with our official content for today. Brandon and I would like to express our personal opinions about the unfortunate situation in the United States of America at the moment with the decision of the Supreme court to overturn Roe versus Wade. As a person that has grown up identifying as female, I must say this is a huge disappointment. And I am sure Brandon agrees that we are both in full support of all of the protests, activists, uh, organizing, and donating to funds that will help women in difficult situations to get the best care they can.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: We're sorry to start off on a dire note, but unfortunately, that's the way things are right now, and we both agree that it is better to acknowledge and advocate for the right choices to be made in this country rather than ignoring them.
1: Yes. And uh, I, I fully agree with uh, everything that Lindsay just said. And uh, I will silence my male voice now.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Brandon. I appreciate <laughs> you. <laughs> okay. Let's get started with today's official content.
1: Yeah. So uh, we are going to, uh, I guess, maybe a little bit of, of background here. Uh, so, uh, and in an, an additional. Um, uh, call here for, uh, for people to submit. So we, uh, if, if, for those of you that have, have been listening to the, to the podcast for a while, uh, if you remember last year on our first birthday, um, we had a kind of a special episode where, uh, we asked for people to send us some quick fictions, um, and then we had those people record and, and, you know, we just shared, uh, those throughout the, that episode. Um, I I love that episode. It's, it's probably one of my favorite episodes that we've done, just hearing all of those different voices. Um, and so we were hoping to do, do the same thing this year. And, uh, we, you know, we, we sent out the call, um, part of it i think was um you know a little bit falls on me for getting the call out uh, fairly late um and so we haven't gotten a ton of of submissions yet uh we had a few that kind of trickled in um so we do want to still do this for an upcoming episode so please um send uh send your your quick fictions to us um uh, but we're gonna just kind of put that on hold, um, for now. But we still wanted to do something kind of, you know, a little bit special, a little bit different, um, considering it's our second birthday, just to kind of celebrate that a little bit. So we're gonna be, um, Kind of reading through a short story, um, and um, maybe doing a little bit of voice acting. We'll see how <laughs> how ambitious uh, uh, we get, and and maybe even uh, I'll, I'll when I am editing, we'll add some sound effects in just to to make it a little Ooh. bit of an experience. That
0: would be um,
1: fun, yeah. Um, and then um, Lindsay and I will just have a little bit of a discussion um, afterwards about that.
0: We will also have some words from the author introducing their work and how they found the experience of participating in a eco-minded queer project, and hopefully they can speak to some of the ways that they personally find the inspiration to write ecologically-minded fiction.
2: Hello, all. My name is Cynthia Zhang. I'm a writer and grad student currently based in Los Angeles, and I am very excited to share my work with you today. So this particular story, What the Water Gave, came together out of a couple of different impulses. So to begin with, I've been interested for a long time in what it might mean to have magic in an everyday context. Magic is not fireballs and bolts of lightning, but just as a neat little cheat for making your coffee taste a little better or keeping your fingers warm in the winter. In developing the particular magic system for this story, I think that I was in particular subconsciously influenced by Terry Pratchett's Tiffany Aching series, as well as by Robin McKinley's Chalice. And what I see as tying all these books together is the fact that in them, magic is very much tied to a connection to the land. If you treat the land well, then it will treat you well in return. There are other kinds of magic, of course, and you can see hints of those systems in this story as well, but I wanted to focus in particular on a form of magic that centered caregiving and mutual respect. The other major thing driving the creation of this story is my long lasting frustration with love triangles. I am just seriously so tired of stories where the main conflict is, oh no, I have to choose between the love interest who's dark and brooding and the one who's sweet and reliable. You fool. You have two hands, as long as everyone consents and treats each other with mutual respect You can have two partners. So here's my attempt to give us a little bit more polyamory representation. So, What the Water Gave is named after a Florence and the Machine Song, and it appears in Xena Cultivars, an anthology focused on queer plant life. Speculatively Queer produced the anthology and I think they did an amazing job both with all of the stories and with the incredible cover art. Please feel free to check them out at speculativelyqueer.com where you can also pick up a copy of Xenocultivars or their previous anthology. It gets even better, stories of queer possibility. As for me, if you're interested in other things I've written, Please feel free to check out my novel, After the Dragons, which is about dragons, climate change, and sad queer kids trying to make it work in Beijing. I'm also on Twitter at CZ underscore rights, where you can find links to more of my work. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the story.
1: Great, thank you. That was that was a wonderful introduction to your work. And so now we can uh, get into the the reciting of the short story.
0: Thomas comes from town at precisely six, the way he always does. Technically, a lightkeeper's hours vary depending on the season and amount of sunlight, but Thomas is a creature of habit. He likes his schedules and routines, the neatly patterned shape of familiar days. They are alike in that, even if Mara's routines are organic, tied to the tides and skies rather than mechanical time. Got you a new one, he says, pulling out a thin manila folder from his battered satchel.
1: New family. Moved here a couple of months back. Don't think you've met them, but they're looking for their daughter.
0: Mara takes the folder. From the pages, a young girl's face stares out at her. Sarah Rodriguez, 12 years old and curly-haired, with dark eyes too large and solemn for her small frame. According to ABC News, She was last seen on a Girl Scouts trip telling her friends to go back to camp as she inspected a tree stump. We thought she wanted to count the rings or maybe collect some leaves, said 15-year-old Allison Bradford, a round, freckled face peering out of the news photos. It's what we're supposed to do on these trips. Explore nature, engage with the outdoors. We didn't think she was actually going to go anywhere. The Scout Coordinator called the rangers when Sarah didn't show up by evening but after two days of canvassing the mountain, they've found nothing. There's a photo of the area where Sarah was last seen, paper-clipped together with amber alerts and the flyers her parents have put up around town. It's an ordinary enough clearing. Young cedars, bright sunlight, a clearly marked dirt trail, and a small sign warning visitors not to feed the wildlife. Moss climbs the sides of the stump, and a ring of small white mushrooms grows around it. If not for the thickness of the stump, nearly twice as wide as the trunks of the trees around it, the picture would be indistinguishable from any other photo of a state park. A perfect spot for families to picnic or couples to while away a warm afternoon. Mara looks up. Did the parents tell you all of this? Or did you collect it yourself?
1: They were talking about it at the bar. The rest was easy enough to find, once I knew what to Google.
0: She nods. Flipping to the next page. The people of Asheville are friendly, but it is still a small town, and Thomas has been here far longer than Mara has. Mothers smile at her in the street, but they also hold their bags a little tighter, keep their children a little closer. She understands this, even as it stings. Unlike Thomas, who makes a minimal effort at sociability— Mara has lived near Asheville for years without attending its baseball games or talking to grocery store clerks beyond saying hello and thank you. It is for the best. A witch watches and waits. And Mara knows she discomfits people with the way she studies them and her preference for silence over conversation. Since the first wives plucked herbs to ease birthing pains, heartsick lovers and desperate mothers have come to witches for traveling sweethearts and ailing children— Farmers have sought their aid during clamming season and poor harvests. But a witch's place has always been on the periphery. Close to, but never quite a part of the people she watches over.
1: Oh, darling.
0: Her mother sighs in her mind, mouth a delicate moo of distaste.
1: If that's true, why even bother with people at all?
0: No longer a lonely, sheltered teenager, Mara has a dozen answers on the tip of her tongue, but she forces them down. Even within the confines of her own imagination, her mother has never been much for listening. Thomas's gaze is sharp, too knowing as he watches her flip through the rest of the information. Over the years, he has seen her talk down raging waves and speed the knitting of broken bones, ward off crop blight, and ease away mercenary developers with dreams of transforming Asheville into condos and beach homes. Mara has helped lost pets and drunk lovers home, but that was when home was a mere few miles away. In theory, she knows she can do it. Once upon a time, when she was still living in Baltimore with all the accumulated power of her mother's coven, it would have been a mere trifle to locate one lost girl. But her mother is on the other side of the state, and Mara has no intention of bridging that divide now. Coffee? Thomas asks. Or whiskey? "Mm, Coffee. Hold the whiskey, please she says, starting up the stairs toward the observation deck. I'll be up for a while, I think. In the morning, an hour or so before dawn, Mara goes down to the shore. It is quiet, the only other living presence the gulls, and those know her well enough by now to no longer bother looking up from their exploration. Like Thomas, the land was wary of her at first, this strange city girl combing its shores for driftwood and drying starfish, skin the same pale shade as that of the men who had driven out the place's original guardians. Trust, like flowers after a frost, came precariously, with time and care. Toes digging into the sand, Mara lets the waves wash over her ankles as the shore offers its bounty. Bottle caps... Sea glass hazy shades of green and blue, long tangled tresses of seaweed, and pale seashells the size of fingernails. The starfish she scoops back into the sea, away from the hot sun. The bits of bone and broken turtle shell she lays aside to grind into powder for poultices and luck potions. The cracked beer bottles and plastic wrappers go into the trash, spelled with a quick cantrip to expedite their decomposition into clean earth the plastic bottles and dented soda cans she takes home to be washed and given to the recycling center the next time she goes into town. When she has finished sorting through what the ocean has given, she lays out her own offering. Divination is a traditionally fussy affair, but over years of willing hermitage, Mara has parred the process down to the essentials. For Sarah Rodriguez, Mara brings old things and sea-sharpness, a wreath of salt-stiff seaweed, mussel shells, the sun-bleached skull of a turtle, and a handful of mackerel bones, the small, sharp kind that catch in unsuspecting throats. I return these to you, to return what has been taken from here. She sets the bones afloat. They drift toward the horizon, and one, by gleaming one, sinks slowly into the water. Tomorrow morning, she will return and study the pattern of flotsam and human trash on the sand. What the water gives may be garbled or cryptic or not at all relevant, an answer to a question asked months ago or a year in the future, but it will be the truth. Until then, there is always work to do. There is a shift in the air when Mara walks down to the shore the next morning, a quiet whisper that buzzes beneath her skin. The waters have heard, and the waters have answered. As the tides gently splash against her ankles, Mara crouches down, letting the ocean's whispers surround her as she studies the sand. In the play of seashells and bottle caps, she reads the story of Sarah Rodriguez, an only child, beloved and protected in the way of those born to parents who had long stopped hoping for children at all, a bit too outspoken and odd to be truly popular but always friendly, with an intensity that produced fierce loyalty in the friends she did have. The kind of bright kid who preferred dragons to romance, daydreaming to grades. There is fear, but also something else. A bright note, standing out from the acrid background of anxiety and confusion. Despite everything, there is a part of Sarah that is excited, almost giddy at the thought of never returning. Mara reads the signs once, Twice, to be sure. Water drips from her skirt as she stands up, a trail of salt water and footprints following her as the waves wash the message back into the water. There are monsters in the woods, talking wolves and pale white bears spun from mist and hollowed eyed creatures warped cruel by years of pollution and human predation. But they are not the only entities there. Slumbering forest gods, older than empire, Long-limbed spirits with fingers of fog and aether, adhering to no law but that of the seasons themselves. Smiling old women who may hunger for soft child flesh, but will at least feed them first, keep them on if they prove themselves clever or useful enough. The woods are full of monsters, but all shadows can be monsters, given the right light. And Mara knows, too, the call of the forest. The desire, when the world weighs too heavy on human shoulders to keep walking, never looking back, simply letting the clean line of trees close behind like the doors of a childhood bedroom. Sarah Rodriguez may be in danger, or she may not be; may have gotten lost by accident or by choice. From Thomas's gossip and her own spies, sly flies and soft-winged moths who lurk all day in larders and bars before creeping in to report at sunset. Mara knows that Sarah's relationship with her parents is complicated. Not loveless, but complicated in the way all love is when you are 12, almost 13. Products of another culture in a country still wary of claiming them as its own, Rosa and Esteban Rodriguez love their daughter. That does not mean they understand her, this American child with her love for Tolkien and too much black in her closet. But they are trying. That... Mara knows from long experience, can count for so much more than it would appear. So for Sarah Rodriguez, Mara sends out her bravest troops, quick-legged spiders and clever mice who know the best ways to sneak crumbs and trinkets past crackling kitchen oil and purring house cats. By late afternoon, she has everything she needs. By dusk, she is kneeling on the shore again, winding together the strings of a spell to call Sarah Rodriguez home. The clasp of a long-forgotten handbag is attached to a phone charm. A scrunchie bundles together colored pencils and Pokemon cards and a bent skull ring. A small bouquet of things worn and loved and lost. A broken pair of headphones received for some birthday long past the edge of a sugar skull left over from last October. A piece of tamarind candy, the brand Sarah's mother drives to the next town over to buy. Moss anchors the spell in luck purple comfrey flowers woven throughout for safe travels. This is you, Mara thinks, twisting flowers out of lace and faded notebook paper. These are the pieces of the world you loved and left behind. The small joys waiting for you when you return. Lastly, Mara lays her offerings, dandelion tea, homemade jam, and a charm woven from reeds and sea glass another home, if Sarah should want it, if she should need it. She hopes it will be enough, but even if it is not, well, she thinks as she walks out of the water, a single figure against the hush line of sea and sky and night. Perhaps, even then, it will not be quite a tragedy. A year or so after she first moved to Asheville, Mara went back to Baltimore. There was no force summoning her, no whisper of pitchforks or small-town suspicion driving her back to familiar terrain. A year on, and though the land was still not quite friendly, it had begun to tentatively trust her, giving clearer answers with the tides. The tomatoes in her garden were ripening, fat and pale yellow-green. But Mara had lived in Baltimore for 26 years— slept in the same chilly third-story bedroom and read leather-bound grimoires beneath the sharp gazes of Thoth and Hermes before Asheville and Thomas and the Sea. It had not always been happy, but it had still been the first 26 years of her life. The city was in her, a solid weight claiming her in the way only land can. For all the sour associations Baltimore's coffee shops and Skyline now held, It was impossible not to miss them. So one day in early May, with an offering left at the shore and chains of rosemary and basil hung to keep her house safe, Mara packed her clothes into her backpack, biked into town, and boarded a bus to Baltimore. The youth hostel she checked into was situated above a bar, but the location was good, and the front desk staff graciously offered free earplugs. In the morning, after a breakfast of cornflakes and coffee, and an apple in her purse for later, Mara took the train to her mother's house. She did not bother with glimmer Without makeup or jewelry, there was little chance her mother's friends would recognize her. Perhaps they would find signs of her afterwards in the traces of an aura or the shifting of the ley lines announcing another witch in her mother's domain, but Mara did not intend to stay that long. A pricked thumb and a drop of blood to appease the land... And there it was, a tall black townhouse springing up between other tall black houses. Witch's Row. Though glamour and secrecy meant few knew it by that name, to tourists and non-magical locals, it was merely a curiosity, an odd sprouting of Gothic architecture in the middle of Locust Point. Something to photograph for Instagram, nothing more. sitting on a bench with an iced coffee and a ragged paperback as cover. Mara could make out little of what was happening in her mother's house. Occasional flashes of jewelry through the window or snatches of voices carried into the street, but nothing of who they belonged to. Her mother must have been hosting brunch to have company over at this time of day. Always a more casual fare than dinner parties, but no less ritualistic for all that no less a parade of socialites and city council members whose magical ambition ended at the limits of their own comfort. All from old wealthy families come to flaunt their wealth and power amidst equally glittering kin. Mara's family was from Essex originally, descendants of an old witching line driven to migration by the impending civil war and fanatic young men proclaiming themselves witchfinder generals. They caught few real witches, mostly wives with sharp tongues, or old women with more knowledge of plants than most. But Mara's family had not survived the centuries without a keen sense for danger. As Matthew Hopkins rode from town to town charging money for murder, and the roundheads and cavaliers loaded their rifles against each other, Mara's ancestors packed their bags and grimoires for Lord Baltimore's New World venture, where witches might not be welcome but Papists and Protestants could still pass each other on the street and expect a civil greeting. Setting up home on the muddy banks of Chesapeake Bay, they coaxed fat tomatoes and jewel-toned sweet corn from the land and traded with the Piscataway tribes for fresh meat and knowledge of the local herbs. Hares and sleek-furred otters fled into their traps. Cleverer animals, capable of taking human shape, found their way into warm feather beds, and so strengthened subsequent generations with shifter blood. Their luck only increased over the years, as Maryland transformed from province to state, and Baltimore from settlement to city proper. Neighbors died, pledging their lives to God or abolition or the Confederacy. Governments rose, fell to rebellion, then rose again. Skies grew gray with smoke, and the waters of the bay muddy with sludge as the fish died in droves. But Mara's family survived. Generations of witches thrived, singing the fat from the land and growing rich on its bounty, gradually forgetting the importance of thanking the earth and repaying what is given. On a bright spring morning, in a gentrified neighborhood of a city built on stolen land, Mara sat outside the house she had once lived in and watched figures moving inside. She stayed there, spine straight and gaze unwavering, until all the ice in her coffee had melted, and she had to squint her eyes against the glare of the midday sun. Then she stood up, packed the paperback into her backpack, finished her coffee, and walked to the nearest cafe for a panini and the blessed chill of air conditioning. There was an exhibit at the Baltimore Museum of Art, and, if she was lucky, there would be time to stop by Book Escape afterwards. She was running low on reading material. The next morning, Mara bought a lobster roll the size of her head and walked through Inner Harbor, breaking off pieces of bread for the gulls as she turned discarded snack wrappers around her into compost for the clover growing through the sidewalk cracks. And then, with two boxes of burger cookies stuffed into her backpack, a new selection of Agatha Christie paperbacks, and a baseball hat with a dancing crab for Thomas, she took the bus back to Asheville. Thomas is early. Mara sees his car outside the lighthouse, but deep in the middle of kneeling in the dirt and hammering in wooden stakes for the summer squash, she does not head to the keeper's quarters until sunset signals the end of her shift. There's an open bottle of Merlot in the kitchen, and Thomas greets her with a raised glass and a rare smile. You're chipper today, Mara says, towing off her sandals for house slippers? A good run at poker? Or did June Everett finally break it off with Nathaniel Williams like she should have six months ago? Thomas snorts.
1: You give that girl far more credit than she deserves. Me as well. At least when it comes to betting. Come here.
0: He pats a spot on the couch next to him.
1: There's something you should see.
0: Curious, she joins him. Look. Thomas says, tilting his phone toward her. It's open to a news site, and as Mara leans over, the video begins playing. She has to squint at the tiny figures on Thomas's old phone, but she recognizes her almost immediately. Sarah Rodriguez, small between the park rangers walking on either side, a news anchor's voice floats over the footage. After three weeks of searching, a local hiker... Efforts of friends and family. A truly astonishing stroke of luck. Sarah Rodriguez is scratched and sunburnt, dehydrated and exhausted, but she is alive and she is safe. Good work. Thomas says, raising a glass. They drink, the wine settling somewhere warm and familiar in Mara's stomach. Sitting here together with a bottle of good wine and the fruit of their labor on the screen before them she thinks she could bottle up this moment and live off it for years to come
1: all right awesome um well first of all um thank you so much uh Cynthia for um the uh the sh- allowing us to kind of share your the at least the excerpts of, of the short story here um we will the the link uh to the edited collection is in uh, the show notes. So make sure you check that out. Um, Cause this was just excerpts of this story. It wasn't the full story. Um, and there's plenty of other um, great stories in there. So, so everyone, please, please check those out. So um, yeah, I guess let's, let's dig in and talk about this a little bit. So anything you want to start with?
0: Yeah, I, I think there's just so much sort of rich, ecological world building going on in this story that, comes out through all of the characters sort of actions and values and is just sort of integrated really well, I think, into the, the world, as I said. Um, I also just, I love the idea of witches, you know, I feel like witches are usually associated with nature, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's not uncommon, but this story takes it into sort of an even further place of witches as sort of this very active ecological figure Mm -hmm. where sort of Mara's powers include being able to cast spells that make trash break down more quickly, right? And I just, and like, you know, directly using her magical abilities to ward off coastal developers coming in to try and like build condos and hotels on the beach. Um, I guess as someone from a coastal town that has a ton of development, (laughs) (laughs) like it really resonated with me.
1: Um, I I've, I think too. I liked the the I guess the the witchiness of it, for lack of a better word. It's mm-hmm. it it kind of it's both like kind of abrupt and like it's like oh wait wait, wait witch it like you mm-hmm. know like it, but it kind of it, it slowly kind of unfolds itself in there because um, it just kind of you know. Starts off as a normal, like okay, these people are in a coastal town, and she's got a friend, and uh, works in a lighthouse, and you know this that, and the other, and then uh, and then there's a kind of the first mention of, of of witches, but it's just kind of like, well, is it like a metaphor at that point? Mm-hmm. Is it? Um, and then you know, just the way that it kind of slowly unpacks, um, and I I kind of like that. I, I don't know. I guess that I don't want to call it a parallel, but the way that it. Um, you know, because it, it obviously it gets into like, or at least hints at, um, you know, kind of that real history of, mm-hmm. um, you know, the witch trials mm-hmm. and you know, violence against women, um, and uh, and so it's it's just interesting. There's like there's a subtleness to it where it's clear that they're kind of hidden, that they're not, but they're not fully hidden because like there's the house where people can, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's not like they're they're actively trying to hide themselves, but they're also um not you know coming right out and just doing magic in front of everybody mm-hmm. um and so i, I don't know i'm I, there's something there that i'm i'm like I'm teasing mm-hmm. around in my head um i'm not quite there yet but i just i like that um that there's that kind of subtleness to that mm-hmm. um aspect of of magic and and witches um that's happening mm-hmm. in here
0: yeah i think that it's one of those things that I associate as well with like queer media, for example, where mm-hmm. it's when you make, we'll just take, so we'll just take being gay, for example. When you make being gay the primary story plot, you know, it goes a certain way to sort of just perpetuate issues and stereotypes a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, often people in the queer community are looking for and asking for more media that it's just part of who the people are and they have Mm -hmm. lives and they do other things. It doesn't have to be that it's about being gay. Right. And so I feel like this story kind of does the same thing with witches as well. It's both it's Mara is a queer woman and a witch, but it's not about struggles necessarily about those things. Mm-hmm. It's just about her and her life and the things she does, you know, as a witch at times. But it doesn't, it's not, you know, being a witch is not overemphasized.
1: Yeah. If that yeah. makes sense. It does. And I think I think that's kind of what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. thinking and trying to get at but like you obviously said way more eloquently (laughs) and and coherently um than i did um there was something else i was just Mm -hmm. there was a particular section in here now i can't uh keep talking and see if i can find it and then
0: yeah i also agree with you that i i like how it ties being a witch and witchcraft to the real history not only of the witch trials but of the location right and Mm. place and specificity of place is something we talk about a lot in the environmental humanities i feel and so the idea of this like talking about the sort of gentrification genocide removal of indigenous peoples and cultures in sort of baltimore area adds that same sort of like historical grounding
1: yeah um Sorry, I'm jumping aside now because no, um yeah, and, and so I think one of the other things I like to and it's kind of piggybacking off of, of what you were just talking mm-hmm. about a little bit, I think, is um you know, so obviously like she has magic and mm-hmm. magic that is very much able to address a pretty serious you know actual mm-hmm. real world, world concern mm-hmm. um and so there's you know in some ways it's kind of i don't want to i don't want to go so far as to say like kind of problematic but like you know like okay it, it, i guess it's for me it's um when with magic in general sometimes um when okay well i can use it for this thing is that like taking away like is it is it kind of like okay well we don't have the effort to actually like walk around and clean up and pick up trash or or not litter in the first place or deal with with waste and and what happens with it and but i also pairing that with this notion of like you know she just gets to to be that is also um we're only getting one perspective here right that they're mm-hmm. they're uh you know maybe she's the only witch that actually like
0: mm-hmm. cares
1: about the environment or you know that that like mm-hmm. um you know so in the same way that we, we i i you know maybe in, in my first kind of reading or you know listening of this i was like I was finding a problem with that, but maybe that's because I'm you know making a sweeping assumption about well like you've got this power to fix this natural um uh you know disaster but you know Eh, um, might as well be yeah um uh you know why aren't aren't all of you banding Mm -hmm. together to just to just fix this Mm -hmm. stuff um Mm. which uh is you know i i mean i i on on one hand is true but it also is now um you know if i'm p- always pointing the finger at you know well why aren't you doing more why aren't you mm-hmm. doing more there's never a moment of introspection or it's not mm-hmm. also allowing people to have complicated feelings about things and to um to be complete people that i'm i'm reducing them down to just you know kind of kind of finger wagging or something i don't mm-hmm. know that was again i'm mm-hmm.
0: i'm no that's I, I, that's I, I, good
1: yeah it's <laughs> i'm i'm formulating <laughs> thoughts and talking about them and
0: yeah, um, yeah. but but i you know i agree that I think that that's a really good um, sort of reading of this to acknowledge because I I do think that there's some element of, you know, I, I do think that's not uncommon, right? That it's not an unknown mindset to think that like writing fantasy or in sort of magical genres and like having sort of magical solutions can lead to people not taking things seriously or like, well, we should be, we should be thinking about the reality of it. And I agree with that, but I also, to an extent, but I also, you know, see the value in thinking about things, you know, fantastically of like, what if, but to speak to your idea of like, is she the only witch that is doing this? I do think that's kind of what's hinted at with her mother, Right when she goes to Baltimore and all of the sort of narration around it is that the witches in Baltimore forgot to thank Mm -hmm. the land and are now like holding witch brunches with like Congress people or whoever it is, like who just want power Mm -hmm. and that they're kind of complicit in the pollution and colonization essentially. Yeah of that area and so i think that there is um, maybe in like a longer book right that would be addressed right but in the short story i do think there are hints that mara left that purposefully mm. to live the type of life she is living which is in this like hermitage as she calls it like a sort of hermitage space where she's connected to she takes the time to build the trust and connection with the ocean. Yeah. And I so I do think that kind of, like, shows that even though she does have some magical help in that she, like, can make plastic break down more quickly, it's via her hard work at connecting with the environment and the specific place she's in, and that she still even takes, like, other, you know, she still puts in the trash can. She just... She cleans up the beach and then puts a spell to help it degrade more, but she's still doing the action we would do, which would be put it in the trash can or take it to recycling.
1: Recycling, yeah. Um, yeah, And actually, that was... um, I think that section in there, when she's kind of walking the beach, that was Mm -hmm. probably my favorite section Mm -hmm. in this whole thing. Um, Because it reminded me a lot of... um, I am 100% sorry, because I am probably um, just not pronouncing your name correctly and uh I feel awful for that. Um but uh I think it's a uh, neminus neminus. Mm. Uh they uh this concept of weathering um is is what I'm thinking of and and um and so which is is just to say like taking the time to actually be in that moment to to be exploring mm-hmm. that space to taking in what's around you and to connecting with it and and not continually having those separations um that exist and and you know kind of putting up barriers where it's like well you know I'm I'm walking I'm taking a hike through the trees but I'm aware that I'm you know a person walking through it versus just being in that moment and 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 f- being fully aware of everything that's that's around um and so in that section I just all those there's there's just a lot of moments mm-hmm. in there where there's just um cuz it not only connects her to this particular moment, but, but it all, she also finds connections to other moments in time, um, through that, that experience. Um, and it connects her to Sarah, who is, mm-hmm. is kind of like both separated from time and distance at that, at that moment. Um, and so I, I did, I really loved, um, that kind of notion of weathering that was coming through in here. Um, and, and again, just kind of serving as that model, but also, um, this kind of hinting at the way that weathering, um can be used almost interpersonally um that you know again kind of going back to um you know uh queer kind of issues that are that are in play here um but just that notion of you know um if I'm just kind of existing in the world and I'm, and I'm allowing myself to connect with everything and to, to be a part of this world, it means that it's also being a part of all of the incredible diversity of life and experience and culture and thoughts and, and all of that stuff. Um, and so, you know, just the way that, that Mara really serves as this model of, um, just kind of fully allowing yourself. And I think to your point, um, just the hard work that that entails, right. That it's not, Mm -hmm. it's not easy work to just, you know, be fully in a moment. You have to actually put effort in to do that. Um, that, you know, a lot of us don't have the time or willpower or, you know, even the care in the world, uh, to, to want to do that. So, um,
0: yeah, I agree, especially about the sort of ability to, ability that the story has to sort of bring to the forefront the labor that's involved in caring for the world. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, even in, throughout the story and a little bit in the excerpts we read today, you know, Mara's constantly tending her garden, right? It isn't that as a witch she just plants the seeds and then they magically become really plentiful and well-growing plants. Like she still does all of the labor of caring for all of the sort of environmental non-human world Mm -hmm. around her. And that there is a very distinct sense that it's not something that just happens. Nothing just happens in this story. So even though there's magic, every act of connecting with the land and the ocean, creating the needed ingredients for a spell, tending her garden so she has food and things to help the townspeople. All of those things take labor. And it is kind of that good analogy for like how much conscious care needs to be exerted to take care of the environment.
1: And I, I also like, um, there's, I think, there's something to be said too about this idea of of Thomas, who's not only like a supporting character, but a very kind of supportive mm-hmm. character. Um, and that you know, um, I, I, you know, again, maybe just traditionally stories would um, make him do more or be more or something like mm-hmm. that. And so just just letting um, that character kind of exist. Um, there to support and to you know like you know very much like congratulates and and um but doesn't feel the need to you know male privilege himself all over the place mm-hmm. i guess for for lack of a better um you know to kind of continually insert um so yeah so i think i think just you know a lot of of you know in just in the, in the, in the span of just you know uh you know, I think it was about nine pages or so that we mm-hmm. read, um, you know, just a lot of, of good models, um, which I think t- to me is one of the the best things about literature. The, the best things that, that we can take away from literature is when we find these really, really positive characters that, um, that not only allow us to kind of see ourselves in, but also to, um, to help us, um, reflect and, and, reevaluate and, and, and reposition ourselves, uh, in, in the real world and, and our thinking and our behaviors and stuff like that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I agree. And I, I think that even Sarah, the missing young girl, I think that that's, you know, just another relatable model probably for a lot of, a lot of people I've met, of course, in the environmental humanities who just Love Tolkien and <laughs> like fantasy books, and feels a sort of draw to being, you know, in the in the forest and mm-hmm. see what may be out there. And so I think that was a sort of nice nod as well to you know that sort of being that sort of child yeah. and what that can mean about your relationship with nature.
1: Anything else you want to chat about for the short story?
0: I mean, I think we could probably talk. <laughs> <laughs> Forever about it, but we can also let people go and read it themselves and yeah. have their own opinions. <laughs>
1: yeah. And uh yeah, and, and even uh, you know, reach out to us on Twitter and stuff mm-hmm. and, and let and share um, you know, your thoughts uh, on it and maybe we can read your comments on a on a future episode. Yeah. And, and let us know what you what you thought about it. So
0: Yeah, um, please please do. Please share with us and let us know if you like hearing literature read occasionally we usually you know talk to people maybe about nonfiction scholarly work but this is also part of a literature association so if you enjoy occasionally us reading a dramatic reading of something please let us know
1: yeah absolutely um and if i mean if you have something too that you're like hey i've got this short story i mean obviously if it's short enough please again Mm -hmm. uh, submit it to that quick fictions (laughs) call um but also, you know if you 've got something that 's a little bit longer and you 'd like for us to do something similar um, that we did today with your uh, your work, we would be uh mm-hmm. uh thrilled to do that absolutely mm-hmm. um, and obviously you know have you on as well if you would like to join yeah. us on on the episode and 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 talk about your work so um, well, I guess that's that's a, a good as segue as any. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, if you do have um, ideas for episodes, uh, either you want to share your own work or you have someone that you would like for us to reach out to to have on to the show, uh, you can find us on on Twitter. Um, that is Asley underscore ecocast uh, on there. That also has the link to our link tree, which has the submission form and our email, but you can also email us directly at asley.ecocast at gmail.com.
0: And if you're enjoying the show, please join us every month and like subscribe, follow on Twitter (laughs) and please check out Asley. Anytime you're looking for more environmental humanities content. I've been Lindsay Jolivet.
1: And I'm Brandon Gullum. Thank you all. Bye-bye.